I'm joined by Professor Stuart Samida, who has worked on films like Kung Fu Panda, Ratatouille, The Lion King. Um, you've worked on some great animations. Uh, what exactly is it you do, though, for people who may not have heard of you? Well, I am, uh, by training, a scientist. I'm a biologist. Uh, I teach and study uh, animal um, uh, anatomy and movement. And that is something that is, of course, of interest to students who are in, in medical studies and veterinary studies and things like that. But it is also something that's very uh, important to animators because animation is all about movement. You're acting and you're moving, uh, whether it's a person's face or their body or whatever it happens to be, or a character could be an animal or even a creature that's built out of parts that we know from other creatures. You're making things move. And so movement uh, and, and those kinds of things are key components of my study, but they're also key components of the way we build uh, animation and, and VFX-style films. And uh, if they were creating a creature from scratch, is it often just taking different bits of existing animals, like if you're creating a dragon or something, you would look at That's right, and it's, 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 it's a great question, because what usually happens is that's where students always want to start. They always want to start with a, a cloven-hooved creature with massive swords and crazy things like that, but in the end, really... All of those creatures, whether they're dragons or centaurs or, or, or creatures of your imagination, are usually built out of parts that we already know about. Maybe it's, it's the hoof of a, of a cow or, the, or the, the body of a lion or a horse or, some, or, the, or the wings of a bat. Really, in every case, what we're doing is we're taking apart from something that we can actually study. And so when we create creatures, we're creating them out of, no pun intended, creatures about whom we already know. And if we do that, we then have to select carefully for where we put them together. And that helps drive the, the decisions we make about the rest of their movement. So, so what are some of the common challenges you find uh, for, for animators when they're animating animal characters? One of the most important things is uh, getting an animal's movement natural enough so that you sell it as the animal. There's that suspension of disbelief. So the the audience is engaged in the story. Yet, you have to have that animal still able to act because you need to tell a story with that animal or that person or whomever or that creature. Uh, so it has to be something that moves well enough so that the audience accepts that it can join the universe of the story, yet has the ability to act either facially or body language or in any other case, uh, by, by its construction as a character. Uh, and something you kept coming back to in your presentation was you are what you, you eat. Um, how, <laughs> yes. how does what animals eat affect their physiology? Okay. Why is that relevant? The, uh, the, the, uh, the abbreviated version of that, that is that um, uh, whether animals eat plants or meat has a lot to do then with their body shape. Plant eaters eat plants, and that a lot of plant material is unavailable to you nutritionally. It's all roughage. Uh, whereas meat is easily available to you, so carnivores have relatively uh, slimmer, more flexible bodies. Therefore, they're shaped differently. And even just herbivores. their jaws and mouth. And and that's right. Their jaw positioning is different. Their movements are different. The way they walk and run are different. Well, the way they walk are similar, but the way they run is different. Even the position of their eyeballs is different because they're catching their food as opposed to a plant eater, which is not. And all of those things, which are very predictable, are then useful tools to artists. You can tell them that story once, and that helps them understand a plethora of potential characters. So that must be great for accurate animal movement, but um, often in animal movies, the animals are talking, which 
isn't scientifically accurate, but sure. what, what challenge does that pose then for taking an animal's face and having it move in a way that creates like human noises? So like one are. of the things we have, what I, I, I like to remind my, my uh, biological colleagues is that we're not making documentaries here, right? We understand that. Uh, so the question is, do dogs or mice talk? Of course they don't. They communicate, however. Uh, and so the question is, if they did, how could they do it in a way that doesn't feel jarring to the audience? Which means we actually have to study not only human facial um, uh, expression and, and the way the human face, mouth, and cheeks and teeth make sound, but we have to then try and translate that to the structures available to us on other animals. And we have to make some creative decisions. Sometimes we have to make some design decisions and so on, but it usually involves studying both a human's way of communicating and the construction of an animal's face, and then making some decisions about how we're going to move lips and cheeks and so on. So, like, is it about finding, like, a halfway point between the two? Because, like, I mean, in Lion King, you have a lion, and I suppose with a mammalian face, you can just about make it work. We also have a bird whose beak is moving like yeah, lips. So, so, so the, uh, what kind of decisions do you the make? The farther you get from a human, mm -hmm. the more work it becomes. So, so, so humans have faces and hands. Well, mammals have faces, and they have digits, though they're sometimes more constrained. The hands of a cat or a dog don't look like ours, but they do have the digits. It's easier to make a monkey or a gorilla act with their hands because they're more similar to ours than, say, a dog or a horse. That being said, the farther you move away from what a mammal is, the farther you move away from a human, the more liberty you have to take. So suddenly in a bird the primary feathers, which are really only used for flying, become a proxy for fingers. Uh, you know, suddenly the beak becomes more flexible than it actually is. And, in a very pragmatic way, more of the communication has to be done with other parts of the face. So you can smile with your, with your mouth. But an, a genuine smile also involves your eyes and the way your eyes look. So if you have an animal that's got a weird-looking mouth, you really have to emphasize, say, the eye component of a smile. And that is something where you're not only studying construction, but literally you have um, artists looking at, at um, psych psychology and, and what makes a person respond to a smile. Uh, does it help for uh, performers like, say, Andy Serkis to go in and do motion capture and spend a long time studying animal movements and stuff? Does that make things easier for the animator or...? Is that prone to inaccuracy as well? Or? Okay, you've asked me a really loaded question here, okay? Because the, the core answer is yes. The more a motion-captured actor knows about his or her character, the easier it will be for the animator to do it. Now, that being said, of course, if you're motion-capturing something that looks like a human, say the character's an avatar, mm. it's much easier to match those movements. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be a little tougher when you are creating a character like Gollum, which I didn't work on, to, to be to be fair, to, to you know, uh, um, you know, full disclosure. But it's a human-like character, so that's an easier match than something that's not human at all. Like Smug the Dragon or something. They right. Take and so there, so there, what you're doing is you're using the actor for as much as for inspiration and some of the facial movement hmm. as as is possible. Now it does help to understand a bit of the biology. It certainly does. Uh, now, what's the biology of a dragon? We have no idea. So we have to dis then decide based on the kind of character that the director wants to project on the screen. The other side of that is, uh, for a character like the gorillas in Planet of the Apes, or the chimps in Planet of the Apes, we know a lot 
about the uh, the behavior and motion and locomotion of those animals. And with all due respect, almost all of that was wrong in Planet of the Apes. It was. I watched that film with my wife, who is a physical anthropologist, and although the digital effects were massively impressive, the movement was appallingly incorrect. The posture was incorrect. Even the hand motion was mostly incorrect. So with all due respect to Mr. Circus, he was much better in other films. You heard it here first. Uh, I mean, would King Kong be an example? Was that closer to... Uh, King Kong was a fascinating film for a variety of reasons. King Kong, some of the facial animation in King Kong was stunning. It was beautiful acting. It was, it, was, it was what animation should do. You looked at the face of that character and you saw the character. You didn't think about someone was captured for this. I was very impressed. The flip side of that is an animal that big could never have done the things he did. So if you want me to believe he lives in my universe, I don't buy it. So there's a the physics component as well, which That's is so right. important to animation So as well. if you want me to believe he lives in my universe, then he can't, it can't be strictly a monster movie. Hmm. Well, I mean, we do, we do have uh, monsters that existed on this planet, in a sense, uh, dinosaurs who... That is correct. Years ago. You worked on The Good Dinosaur. I did. As a professor of biology, you'll have access to lots of wildlife footage, and you can study how they move. Mm -hmm. um, how do paleontologists piece together how a dinosaur would have moved, and how do you apply that to the Pixar movie Good Dinosaur? Okay, so what happened... Now, Good Dinosaur, to be fair is a bit more cartoony than something mm. like uh, um, King Kong. And, and I gotta tell you, the T-Rex in King Kong looked really good. Couldn't have done what he did, he was much too heavy for that. Mm. And none of the dinosaurs in King Kong could have done that. They would have exploded like watermelons. Mm. You can't have stampeding sauropods. They can't run. They're like an elephant. An elephant can walk very, very fast, but it can't run. Right. Okay. So, in something like a good dinosaur, you have a double-edged uh, situation. It's a bit more um, stylized and cartoony, so your audience will usually accept when they don't act like a typical animal so much because it looks a bit more cartoony. The flip side of it is you still want the audience to think this is a dinosaur, so you have to give it some of the aspects that a dinosaur would have. So, well, what do we know about the aspects? So, for instance, we know that dinosaurs like the, 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 the basis for one of the main characters, a group called sauropods, the one with long necks and long, yes. long tails. Well, they're very much constrained in the way they could move, very much like a dinosaur, excuse me, like an elephant. And so that's our closest proxy. We don't know for sure, mm. but we can actually look at their footprints. We find their footprints occasionally, and they're shaped the same shape of their feet, so we're very confident which, which prints go with which dinosaurs. And if we see that those match the same style of prints in an elephant, then we know, for instance, that using an elephant as a model for a heavy dinosaur is a good choice. And those are the kinds of things we did. And that's what I got to do when I got to help with that film. We mostly talked about how really big animals walk. Well, so. it, like it shows how helpful science can be to the creative industry. Like, like how, how, do you, how, how important is that for sort of, uh, I suppose, the scientific world and creative industries to sort of interact and there's good funding for, um, I suppose, education that each is aware mm -hmm. of what the other one is doing. So. It, it is, as you say, uh, an interaction that's very important. You are absolutely correct. Uh, but one of the things is that, that interaction is not yet as appreciated as it should be. Um, one of the things that I like to do is it re remind people in the animation and visual effects industries just how much science they're actually doing. Because sometimes the problems they have to figure out are really quite complicated. They are being given a problem or a question or a hypothesis and they must sort it out. Mm. That's a very scientific approach in some cases. 
the flip side of it is is that scientists have a lot to offer and it's not always uh, something of w uh, which artists take advantage. So I'm keen to facilitate that. Uh, but I will tell you that the animation and visual effects industries, I now consider scientific colleagues. They're using very high-tech tools. They're using very sophisticated tools. Anyone who's an animator nowadays is a computer scientist as well. We didn't used to be able to say that. The flip side of it is, for someone like myself, as a biologist, an anatomist, is that art always makes it easier for me to communicate what I do. And imagery is one of the most fundamental and most powerful tools in medicine. Bioimaging is one of the most important diagnostic tools we have. So biological imagery and modeling is going to be the way we communicate this to our patients. So I foresee a much greater overlap between our industries as time goes on. So it's like a good positive feedback loop, like if the arts become more scientifically literate, they produce work that increases scientific literacy and it just kind of... That's exactly correct. And, and one of the things that it also does is it helps us convince uh, the youth of today mm -hmm. that art can be scientifically exciting mm -hmm. and it lets us convince the scientists of today that science can be artistically beautiful and it gives a greater appreciation for both and when that appreciation exists then the collaboration begins and we're always better when we collaborate than when we stay apart yeah. always on that note i just uh, i wanted to bring up a story you were telling about uh, an animator on pocahontas was using you as the <laughs> basis for her i was like uh, do animators often play jokes on each other like that oh, where they'll take a real goodness. person they know as a basis for what they're drawing okay there is a grand grand tradition of caricatures of artists being slipped into films all the time <laughs> one of my favorites uh um is that if you watch the film um aladdin uh, there is a scene where Aladdin is running from the guards and he falls into a pile of dung. Mm -hmm. And the person who is shoveling the dung is a caricature of a crazy, funny, and well-known animator named Tom Cito. And Tom <laughs> was very proud to be the person caricatured in that. In the same film, in the crowd scene uh, during the parade, mm -hmm. many of the people you see in the crowd are caricatures of animators. Uh, my very good friend Charles Solomon was caricatured uh, in uh, one of the scenes in Fantasia 2000. Uh, this happens all the time. Now, my t tiny moment uh, in that world is not so much a caricature, but uh, you can't see me on this podcast, but I can tell you I have a very angular jaw because I grind my teeth at night, and, and my jaw is overdeveloped for, uh, for the size of my teeth. Uh, and when Glenn Keane, who had just come off of uh, Little Mermaid, had to create a female character that looked utterly different from the Little Mermaid, and the Little Mermaid looks very much like his wife Linda, by the way. Um, okay. uh, Pocahontas could not look at all like the Little Mermaid so he gave her an extremely angular jaw and it was noticed that my very angular jaw was quite like hers <laughs> and so at the end of one of the presentations I did at the Disney Studios Glenn presented me with a drawing that said Dear Stuart, thank you for the, um, uh, the wonderful lecture and the inspiring jawline. <laughs> so, in fact, it has been suggested that my jawline has something to do with Pocahontas' jawline. Al along with your complexion and your, your <laughs> long, jet black ponytail. Well, okay, perhaps, but at the time I had shorter hair. 
Now, oh, okay. my, my, my response to Glenn was, really, Glenn? It couldn't have been someone as macho as Tarzan? And he just laughed. <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> oh, thank you very much for joining us on Film Ireland. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Do come back. Will do.